All right. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Oh, come on. Are you there? Good morning. There you go. Thanks. I know you're having too much fun talking to everybody else who wants to talk to me, right? Hey, but welcome to Seacoast. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and it's my privilege to take us into the Word of God. And uh, so open your Bible, grab a Bible, grab your tablet, whatever you're using, but get into the Word. Go to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. We're going to try to cover a huge story that covers chapter 7 and 8. So we're going to be moving pretty quick. As always, I provide an outline for you today. You're going to need it more than usual. So it will really help you if you kind of track with me. You may want to pull out your outlines and uh, follow along. If you're new, uh, I'd love to meet you in the plaza afterwards um, and uh, welcome you along with Pastor Ryan. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Wow, what a refreshing, beautiful morning to uh, enjoy you, to gather, to sing to you, to sing about you, uh, to pray to you, to give to you. But now, Father, uh, you want us just to listen. But not just listen um, to be entertained, but listen to learn. So I would pray that your spirit would uh, speak um, into our lives, uh, beginning with me, work on me today. Even as I teach your word, Father, thank you for the lessons you've been teaching me this week, and thank you for the beautiful wisdom of your word. So I pray for that to to be used by you today, and I trust you will in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start with a question today that I want to ask you, and that's this. When, when you think of God in relationship to your everyday life, how would you want that relationship to be described? I'm not talking today, especially, I'm not talking about, well, I want Him to be my Savior, I need forgiveness, uh, I want to go to heaven. Uh, we know that that's foundational to everything else. Putting your faith in Christ and what He did on the cross that gives us eternal life and gives us grace and forgiveness. That's foundational to everything. But imagine for now, for most of us in this room, that you've already made that decision. What I'm asking now is this, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how do you want God to be described in relationship to you? One of the most common phrases used in Scripture to describe how God relates to us is the hand of God. Sometimes in Scripture it's described as God's hand being against evil or against this or that. Other times it's God's hand being for us or God's hand being on us. So when you think about God's, you might say the presence, think of the hand of God as, as a symbol of God's presence and involvement in your life. How do you want God's hand in relation to you? When I think about our culture, I think of at least four different ways people think about the hand of God. So let me let you kind of pick between these four. Number one is God's hands are folded. One of the most common views of American uh, thinking these days is that God exists. Very, very few atheists in our culture, by the way, who really don't believe that God even exists at all. 
But the most common view, perhaps, in the Western culture of America and Europe would be that, well, God is out there somewhere. He's kind of a mystery. And he probably did somehow cause this big bang to happen. And, and he created some universal laws of physics. And so God somehow probably created everything. But now God's hands are folded. God's kind of sitting in a rocking chair as the old guy and just kind of rocking away. Hands folded because God's not really involved in our life. So one thing would be, do you want God to be that kind of a God? He's there, but he's just kind of got his hands folded. Number two would be that God's hand is against us. I know very few people that would vote for that option, but it's out there. That's the person that says, I believe God is probably there, but I really don't give a rip and I don't really care what he thinks. So God's hands are folded or God's hands are like this, against us. But perhaps the most common other views would be these two. And that is God's hands are off. God's kind of a hands-off God. He's there and his hands are available to reach and, and grab us if we're falling or help us in a crisis. But pretty much we want God to be a hands-off God. We don't want God messing with our lives. At least not the details. But we want him there. We want him to be a hands-off God who's kind of on call if we need him. God's hands are either folded or against us, or it's kind of God's hands off, or God's hand is on us. And when you hear the phrase, God's hand is on us, you know, or even if you think of someone, let's say someone that you works for your company, you say, you know, he's a real hands-on kind of guy. If, if a person is a hands-on type person, what do you mean by that phrase? Give me some one-word synonyms. If a person is hands-on, it means they're what? They're involved. They're what? They're active. They're involved. They're relational. They, they're high-touch. They're, often you'll hear words like they're involved in providing, at least when I think about God being hands-on, God is guiding, God is protecting, God is providing. But that's a hands-on relationship with God. Now my question is this, what kind of a relationship do you want with God? As a follower of Jesus Christ, do we really want God to be hands-on? Hands off, but there to grab us if we're falling. Against us, we're just kind of checked out. Arms folded. You know, I ask it that way because I, I think in my own life, a lot of times the easy answer or the correct answer, if you're a pastor especially, is to say, well, certainly you want God to be hands on. But sometimes I probably wake up and I'm not sure I really want that. Sometimes I kind of feel like, you know, God, I've kind of got today well planned and I don't want you screwing it up. Okay, so, you know, today I've kind of got it under control. And so maybe today, God, can you just be kind of hands off, but be there if I need you. But today we're going to study the life of a man who is the focus of the story. Up until now in the book of Ezra, let me give you a clue. 
We've been studying God's involvement in the life of Israel. We've been seeing God's involvement in bringing them back out of exile, where they've been sent into exile, back to, back to their land, back to their promised land, to rebuild a temple as a focal point for the worship of God, to restore God to the center of their life as a nation. We've been watching God do that, and the focus has clearly been on all the things that God has been doing. In fact, even the leader of the movement that we just uh, finished studying in chapter 6 to bring the first wave of returnees back from Babylon to rebuild the temple, and the temple was finally completed in chapter 6, and they worshipped, and, and, and even the leader of that is a guy named Zerubbabel. Right? Remember that? First wave under Zerubbabel. But how much do we know about Zerubbabel? Do you know? From, from the book of Ezra. Answer? Nothing interesting that he's the leader of the first wave that rebuilds the temple and there's not a single statement in the book that says Zerubbabel was a man of this or Zerubbabel was this kind of a guy or this is what made Zerubbabel great and there was nothing about Zerubbabel except his name that he was the leader but now all of a sudden in chapter 7 we're going to switch emphases because in chapter 7 and 8 especially we're going to study today a passage where all of the attention really is yes on what God is doing but even even more it seems to be drawing the focus on this man named Ezra. He's the author of the book but it's only today in chapter 7 that he shows up. And I think what God wants us to take away from this is today is all about knowing what kind of a person does God have his hand on? What's it mean to really have God's hand on your life? Because most of us, if you really take time to think about it, would say, I want the hand of God on my life. I don't want God to check out from my life. I don't want God sitting in a rocking chair. I don't want God to just kind of be on call maybe, but uninvolved. I want the involvement of God in my daily life, my family, my marriage, raising kids, grandkids, whatever you're doing. I want the hand of God on me, right? My guess is if we took a vote today, 90% of us would say, I'm not sure I understand what it means, but I want the hand of God on me. So here's the question. What kind of a life has the hand of God on it. And we're going to study that today. So turn to Ezra chapter 7. Here we go. We're going to look at this kind of a man. Let me give you the overview of the story first. This is still God's story. But it moves, it makes a subtle shift from building the temple to building the people for the temple. Because God wasn't just in the business of bringing the, the Israelites back home so they could build Him a temple. God wants to build a people, and the temple was just a vital part of that. It was the center of their worship life. But God is always more important, He's always more interested in building us than building stuff, especially church buildings, okay? So this building is just here, it's a tool to be used by God, but it's the people of God that is always in focus in the ministry of Jesus or the ministry of the Scriptures. That was true in the New Testament, also true now. And at this point, what have we seen happen so far? Let me give you the quick overview. Now, this is just a lot of detail, but I want you to catch it historically. Here's what's been going on. Number one, the first wave of returnees. King Cyrus, who's a pagan king, 538 B.C., under Zerubbabel, is moved by God miraculously to say to the Jews, you are free to go back 
and build. In fact, you're not just free to do it. I command that you do it. I want you to go back and build a temple to the worship of your God because I have respect for your God. I fear your God, and I want to make sure you worship your God and let him know that I'm behind him too, okay? So Zerubbabel is sent with a bunch of people, about 50,000 strong, returning from the exile in Babylon. And they begin the process. They begin to lay the foundation, and that is celebrated. They throw a big party, and then instantly there's a 20-year delay. There's a 20-year delay where the people get more focused on building their stuff, their homes, all that, than they are rebuilding and finishing the building of the temple. So you fast forward 20 years, and then the prophets have to be raised up by God to challenge the people. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah speak out in about 520 B.C., and the people respond, they repent, and they get back to work. And then in 515, they celebrate again when the temple is actually completed. But this time, there's a whole other pagan king, King Darius. Because here's what we're learning. Pagan kings come and go, but God remains. It goes from Cyrus to Darius to Xerxes to Artaxerxes, all in today's sermon. We're going through all kinds, over a hundred years of history. And, and, and the reality is power people and kingdoms come and go. It's kind of like in American politics, right? Power people come and go. But the reality is God is working behind the scenes no matter who's in charge. And we see it through Cyrus. We see it through Darius. Darius does his research. Darius actually says, no, I want this thing completed. I want your God to be worshipped. And they complete it in about 515 B.C. Not too long after that, Darius dies. King Xerxes takes over in 479. You don't really care about that. He's not central to this book. But if you study the book of Esther, where God provides for his people in exile, that's when that happened. Esther becomes his queen. He has a different name in the book of Esther. It's, it's, it's Ahasuerus, but it's the exact same king. He has two names. So this is King Xerxes. But it gets more interesting when his son takes over, Artaxerxes, because Artaxerxes is the guy we know from the book of Ezra who, who hears complaints about them rebuilding, not just the temple now, but now they're starting to rebuild the city, starting to rebuild the walls, starting to work on the infrastructure to rebuild the nation of Israel, and, and, and he's threatened. So he stops the work, and the work is again stopped and and delayed under his leadership. And then that's when we hit today's story. Today's story begins with this simple little phrase, chapter 7, verse 1. Let's read together now. Here we go. It says this, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, the son of, and it has the whole lineage of Ezra, leading down to the most important thing at the end of verse 5, the son of or the great, great descendant of Aaron, the chief priest. In other words, it's emphasizing the priesthood and the lineage of Ezra. That He is a direct descendant from Aaron. Who was Aaron? The very first high priest of the very first temple. So he is of that line. And, and it says Ezra is, is raised up after these things during the reign of Artaxerxes. Now, the average Jew reading this instantly understands, oh, wow, that was a long time later. We don't get that because we don't know our history of Persia. How many of you have a degree in Persian history? Raise your hand. Okay, none of us, right? So here's the deal. They read it, they get it. What they understand that we don't is if you do the math, that's a 57-year gap. 
For 57 years, the progress on the city has been delayed. 57 years from the time they finished the temple to the beginning of today's story. So between chapter 6, last verse, chapter 7, first verse, right in your Bible, over 50 years, a generation has come and gone. People have died off. Other people have been born. But God is waiting. God is waiting. God is committed to rebuilding His city and His nation of Israel. Now, by the way, can I pause for a second to say, why is that important to us? I mean, is this just an ancient story that has nothing to do with us, but it's interesting? Let me tell you something. Beginning next week, you're going to decorate this place for a season called what? Christmas. Do you realize that if what happened in Ezra doesn't get done, you have no Christmas? You ever think about that? Why? Because Messiah would come. God would come down to earth through a baby born in Bethlehem to Jewish parents to go into the city of Jerusalem to, to be the Jewish Savior, Messiah, to, to be celebrated as the King of the Jews as He comes into the city of Jerusalem through the walls of the city. And none of that exists. There is no nation of Israel right now. There are no walls. There is no city to speak of. Only the temple in its basic form has been rebuilt. We're going to learn later. It hasn't even been beautified and and really decorated yet. We're going to learn about that. But, But the reality is this. God needs... This is part of a bigger plan that involves you and me. This is part of God's grand plan to realize man needs a Savior. I'm going to do it through a nation. I'm going to provide a Messiah through my chosen people, and I'm going to provide Jesus Christ who will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, and he will, he will grow up, he will be crucified in Jerusalem by the leaders there. And the reality is, God is working to build a people for himself. And those people were sent into exile because God loved them enough to spank their backside when they just started walking away from God. So God is drawing them back. He's rebuilding the nation, rebuilding the city, and and, and He needs to get it done because God always has a bigger picture. God always has a broader view and a longer-range view of what's happening and why. God is rebuilding a people for Himself so that He might send a Savior for you and for me, and for the entire world. This is part of that process. So God's going to get it done. Today we begin the study of what's called the second wave of returnees. That's the next thing historically. Because they're going to come back with Ezra as the leader now, not to rebuild a temple, but to reform the people and beautify the temple. And then, by the way, what we're not going to study is then there's a third wave that comes, and that's the study of the book of Nehemiah if you want to just continue to read on. But today, the focus on chapter 7 is this. What kind of a young leader did God raise up to actually, after 57 years of no progress or little progress to really get the job done. And that's the story of Ezra. Now I want to give you some highlights of the story. And knowing my time would be limited to cover two chapters, I've actually outlined it for you. So here it is. But let me just draw a few key observations. Number one, Ezra asks for help. Ezra goes to King um, um, Artaxerxes. He asks for help. Ezra is described, however, in verse 6. So focus on this one verse. This Ezra, chapter 7, verse 6, he went up from Babylon, that is to talk to the king, 
And he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. You're going to see six times that one phrase referencing Ezra. Six times it'll say, because the hand of the Lord was upon him. He's a man who lived daily with the hand of God blessing him. That's the big idea of Ezra's life. He gets everything he asked for. We don't even have the backstory, but obviously Ezra had been convicted that, you know something, it's been 50 plus years. I hear that things are not getting done in Jerusalem. I need to lead a wave of people back to finish the work and better yet, to reform the people. So he asked for everything. He gets everything he asked for. And in fact, he gets even more. We don't have time to look at it, but 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 the king's heart is changed. Actually, we see Ezra's heart first. Maybe the most important single verse of the chapter. Draw a box around it right now. Verse 10. Here we go. It says, For Ezra, why did he do this? He went, he did this, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice the law of the Lord, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's what drove this guy. He was a guy that was driven by the Word of God. This guy loved it. He loved to study it, do it, teach it. Because he knew that that brought life to people. We like to say here at Seacoast, we exist to help people experience life in Christ. That's what drove Ezra. Not just to know the Word of God, but he, he, he had learned that, wow, this book is incredible to know the Word of God, but also to practice it he was living it, and he was so excited about what it was doing, he wanted to teach other people. So this is a guy who's driven to know, practice, teach. Know, practice, and teach the Word of God. That's him in a nutshell. We'll come back to that. But that's his heart. God's hand was on the king. The king not only turned him loose, but in chapter 7, 11 through 26, you're going to read it, read it this week when you have more time. But let me just draw a couple of highlights. Number one, this king had been so impressed by Ezra and all that he heard about his God. Look at verse 23. First, the king gives a whole bunch of wealth to help fund the project. And then he says, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, this is what he says to Ezra, Ezra, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, you're the one who knows the word of God. Let it be done with zeal for the house of God, of the God of heaven, so that there will not be any wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. This guy's watching his own backside. This guy is concerned that just as he has seen the God of Israel be a powerful God, he does not fully worship the God of Israel, most likely, but he is so impressed with all that he has heard about this God of Israel that he says, you know something, we got our own gods, but we don't have this kind of a God. So yes, please, please go and make sure that God, your God is being worshipped. And while you're at it, Make sure, hey God, please don't pour any wrath out on Artaxerxes. And let's cover my sons too, by the way, because I know they're going to be following me. So he is watching his backside as he has this respect for their God. He gives a lot of wealth to support their project. Um, one thing that's mentioned, for example, in, verse, um, in this section uh, following verse 21, it, it lists all this stuff that he gives them. So much wheat and baths of of wine and salt and oil and everything the, the priests would need to live and function uh, as they go back to do their work. It even says that he gave a hundred talents of silver. Now, 
Can someone loan me a talent of silver? Anybody carrying a talent of silver today? No one? You have any idea what a talent of silver is? Is it a quarter? Silver dollar? Or more? Here's what it is. A talent of silver, a hundred talents of silver would be about 7,500 pounds of silver. This is a lot of wealth. Later on, we're going to see gold and other things added to this. In other words, this king is in, man. He's saying, not only do I release you to go back, but here's a chunk of money to help fund the rest of the work you want to do and a lot of other supplies. And if you need anything else, man, you just tell me and, 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 and off you go with my blessing. So God did an incredible thing to, uh, to turn the king's heart. Ezra's response is recorded in verse 27. Verse 27 says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing into the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus, I was strengthened, Ezra says, I was strengthened according to the hand of of the Lord my God upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. All right, let's go. And he begins to build a team. Ezra's response is to praise God, not the king. He sees the hand of God at work. I mean, he had no idea how this king might respond. But when he took his request, the king went so over the top in terms of offering to help that Ezra says, this is the hand of God. I see the unseen hand of God at work. God, you're doing this. And he says, God, you're showing me your loving kindness. Underline that word. That word loving kindness in Hebrew is a very rare word. It's the word hesed. It's the word that is the closest Hebrew word to the New Testament word grace. It doesn't just mean love. Oh, wow, God, you're giving me a little love. No, it means a covenantal committed unconditional love it's the type of love that that hebrew word means it's god's uh, loving commitment that he's made to his people see he saw that god had god was fulfilling his promises god is in a relationship that that is a relationship that is based on his grace and his love this begins to sound like jesus this begins to sound like our relationship with God through Christ. That, wow, everything we receive, ultimately, we, He acknowledges, God, this is one more expression of Your love and Your grace. And He begins to get excited. He gathers a team, He recruits a team, and they're all focused on a team of people that can be priests and Levites and, and workers in the temple to go back and to really put this temple into full operation. Why? Because He wants people to go back who can help him teach the Word of God to the people. We're going to see in the next two chapters next week, don't miss next week, we're going to see that this, we're going to see the ministry of Ezra next week. Today I'm focused on his character. So I don't have time to go into all the details of chapter 8, but here's the outline. Um, Ezra exhibits incredible humble dependence upon God. In fact, he's offered a military escort and he turns it down because he says, I so believe that the hand of my God is upon me that I'm going to pass on the military escort. Thank you very much. That's pretty bold. 
He takes all this wisdom, which by the way, they also take up a free will offering of all the other people. And when they report how much stuff they're carrying back, it goes from the amount of silver I mentioned earlier, it goes up to a total in uh, chapter 8, verse 24 and following, 25 tons of silver. That's 50,000 pounds of silver and another 7,500 pounds of gold and all kinds of other supplies and wealth. And that's why the king said, maybe you want to take an army with you. He says, you know something? If the hand, is God, if the hand of God is on me, I believe God will protect me. See, his confidence... Just knowing that the hand of God was on him, he was confident that God would provide. He was confident that God would protect. And God does. They make the journey. It's about a 900-mile journey in chapter 8. 900 miles over a four-month period. They arrive safe and sound, and they worship their God. Now, what do we learn about Ezra the man just as we overview him? Let me draw a few observations. Because the question today is this. Here is a man that... In contrast to Zerubbabel, who had just led the first wave, we know nothing except he was the guy in charge. So why does God constantly pause and say six times, you know, the hand of God was on this guy. The hand of God was on him. And then he gives us hints as to what is it, what is it that allows God's full blessing to be upon us? His full blessing. Not just to get us to heaven, but if we experience the richness of life in Christ, where does that come from? Where we really say, wow, I I really believe God's hand is on my life. Not just in getting me to heaven, but every day. What is it? There are seven things mentioned. I'm just going to click them off and you can pray through them this week. Number one, I think it begins that Ezra was dependent upon and he constantly sought God's blessing. He acknowledged several times Ezra said, wow, because the hand of God is on me. If the hand of God is on me, I'm in good shape. Ezra had a deep awareness that he wanted to live under God's blessing. He wanted that. That was one of his objectives. That's one of his goals. We see that in Scripture, by the way. We see it in Scripture as to some of the hints as to what is it that allows God to fully bless us. You know, this, you know, Jesus, for example, in John 10 says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it, what? Abundantly, more abundantly. You know, and I think a lot of times in our Christian lives, you know, we, we accept Christ and we want to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then we say, but you know, God, uh, we're okay if you're pretty hands off because I think I got, I got, I've got my life covered. I got a plan. I'm working my plan. And God, can you please be a little hands-off, and then when I need you, I'll cry, and you jump. And what this is saying is, you know something? What God really wants is He wants to be hands-on. He wants to be guiding. He wants to be providing. He wants to be protecting. He wants to be using us. He's got a plan for moving His kingdom forward in, in a thousand different ways and uniquely defined by every single one of His children. God has a plan. Um, Kyle mentioned it in his testimony earlier that Ephesians 2 uh, 
says we are saved by grace through faith in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? By grace we are saved through faith. That's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. Same thing with Israel. They were blessed by God's grace, by God's loving kindness. But here's the deal. But then it goes on in verse 10 to say, For God has created each one of us for good works so that we might walk in them. See, God has uniquely designed, crafted each of us for some type of good works that He wants us to be doing as His hand is on us and He's using us to make a difference. That's what Ezra had discovered. What was the secret to Ezra experiencing the hand of God? I think it's summarized in verse 10 more than anything else. In that one verse, he handles the Word of God skillfully. He was a man who loved the Word of God. His heart beat for the Word of God. It's like, this is incredible. God has written us a book. God loved us so much, He told us about life. Wow. you know. So God has given us His Word. And, and He loved it. But He didn't just love it, He studied it. And then number three, he practiced it. He carefully practices God's Word. When he hears from God and God says, hey, here's how to have a good marriage. Treat your wife this way. Try that. Try treating her like uh, Christ loved the church. Here you go. Just picture Jesus dying on the cross, saying, sweetheart, how can I love you? How can I serve you? Okay, that's a radical idea for American marriage, but it's God's idea. For wives, he says, wives, see it that you respect your husbands. Wow, that's an interesting concept. So the key thing is, am I communicating respectful love to my husband? You know, that's a great idea. But when you read the Word of God, do this, don't do this. Take it seriously. God loves us enough to tell us the truth about how to experience full blessing in our lives. It's not just knowing the Word of God. It's practicing what we learn. And then it's also wanting to communicate it to others. Number four. See, he faithfully taught the Word of God to others. You may say, well, but he had the gift of teaching. I don't have the gift of teaching. But, you know, when you think about an everyday life level, all of us are called to teach the Word of God to others. If you're a parent, it's your job, not someone else's, to communicate the truth of God to your kids or to your grandkids someday. If you are a friend and you're really a good friend, let's say you're a friend of someone, you've got a roommate, whatever, if, if, if you're a friend, a good friend, Scripture says we are to exhort and encourage one another from the Word. That's a friendship thing. That's a discipleship, mentoring thing. All of us at different levels, different ways, need to have a passion to know, practice, and then encourage others with the Word of God. I like the fifth one. He trusts the unseen hand of God. We see it repeatedly. Verse 28 is the clearest example when he says, you have extended your loving kindness to me. He says, you have put this in the king's heart. He, he saw that, wow, you know, God, there's things happening in my life that I can't explain. He trusts the unseen hand of God. But yet, number six, when it got time to do the job, he went out and recruited a team. He didn't go alone. He wasn't a solo guy. Ezra wasn't saying, hey, you know something? Me and God, we are, that's all I need. As long as I got God and the hand of God on me, I don't need anybody else. He went out, he recruited some of the leading men of Israel. He selected the very best and brightest. He recruited them to help him. He even provided accountability when it was time for him to take off with an incredible amount of wealth. You know what he did? How much of the money did Ezra carry to Jerusalem? Do you know? 
Zero. It says he found 24 reliable people, divided the money into 24 parts, and gave it all away, and said, each of you be responsible for each piece of the pie here. But by the way, we're counting it when we give it to you. We're counting it when it gets to Jerusalem. So don't use it, abuse it, or rip it off. It's God's money. This guy was incredibly wise. Maybe he knew that that would tempt him to have incredible amounts, millions of dollars worth of wealth at his disposal. He he had accountability. He built a team. So he knew, I've got to work with other people. See, it's that way in life. You know, whatever God calls you to do in life, in your ministry, uh, whatever you're involved in, don't try to do it alone. Do it with other people. That's what Ezra did. Last but not least, when he did succeed, he always faced it with humility, giving glory to God. He faced it with humility. Always giving God the glory. Now I know that's a lot of information in one quick message. But here's what I want you to do. We're going to move into a time of communion in just a minute. So I want the sermon to continue into communion. Because as the band comes to lead us, they're going to give you plenty of time to sit quietly before the Lord. And I really want to encourage you to use today's message as kind of a, a little bit of a checklist Number one, stop and thank God that this bread and this cup is a reminder of the body and blood of Christ given for you. In other words, you do nothing to earn God's love. God's love for you is secure. It's from the cross that He purchased your forgiveness and by His grace He loves you deeply. So you are secure in His grace by what Christ did on the cross. But don't stop there. Take some time and say, God, where in my life do I need your hand on my life? Where in my life have I been saying, you know, God, in this part of my life, would you just kind of be there for me, but let's do it hands off. Don't ask me to change. Don't ask me to go a different direction. Don't ask me to do something I'm not comfortable doing. There's usually some part of your life that you'll think, I know as I've been praying through this, there's something in my life that God is saying, you know, Dale, you've kind of been trying to keep my hands off of this. So where in our lives does God want us to go from hands off to hands on? And use this next few minutes of worship to surrender those areas to Him. That you might become a person of high impact like Ezra. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the incredible um, gift of your grace that we celebrate every week. Thank you that this, uh, this city was rebuilt. These people were reformed. Your nation was reestablished. that you might send Christ to die for us, to be our Savior, our Lord, that we come and worship. Uh, but Father, today, uh, as we move into a time of communion now, um, as we sit before you, we ask you to help us to see uh, where you want us to not just know your word, but practice it. Submit to you. 
to allow your loving hand and touch on our life to to guide us and provide and protect, but also use us. So keep doing your work in us. I know, Father, I need for you to work in my life. I pray that it be true for each of us. In Christ's name, amen. So sit, pray, worship. We'll give you plenty of time. And then in a few minutes, whenever you are ready, if you've placed your faith in Christ, we'd invite you to go to one of the four tables around the room. Take the bread, take the cup. These are reminders of the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, sacrificed for you. It's what gives us life. But as you eat and drink that, use it as a time to kind of recommit yourself to a hands-on relationship with God.